Before the episode starts, I'd like to let you know of a discount code I was given. If you use the code biohackerslab15 at seed.com, you will get 15% of your first month subscription with their probiotic. That's the code B-I-O-H-A-C-K-E-R-S-L-A-B-15 and use that at seed.com. Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Cohen, and on today's episode, I have Roger Deere. Roger is a life sciences entrepreneur and co-founder of Seed. Seed is a microbiome company pioneering the application of bacteria for both human and planetary health. Roger also served on the editorial board for the scientific journal Microbiome and is a director for Micropia, which is a microbial education platform and the world's first museum dedicated to microbes. Roger, thanks so much for coming on for an episode today, and I'm excited to be talking about probiotics with you. Likewise, thanks for having me. Sure. So my main topic is going to be, should you take um, probiotics? And that's what we're going to be delving into. But my first question for you um, will be, what is the definition of probiotics? Because I see on your scientific advisory board at SEED that you have one of the scientists who was involved in defining the actual term probiotics. So I'd be interested, what is the official definition of a probiotic? Yeah, so our chief scientist is a scientist by the name of Dr. Gregor Reed, and um, as he fondly reminds me many times, he's uh, authored 500 more scientific papers in peer-reviewed journals than I have uh, when we get in arguments. But he actually uh, led the group that was commissioned by the United Nations and World Health Organization in 2001, and uh, the meeting, I believe, was in Cordoba, Argentina. And at this time, there was a lot of... Uh, the field was very early about how bacteria or bacterial applications could have, um, you know, impacts on human health. Uh, and the term had yet to be coined and it was being used often as kind of an antidote to, to antibiotics, so to speak. Um, but the term itself needed defining and they landed on a definition, which was live organisms, uh, which confer a health benefit to the human host uh, when consumed in adequate quantities or amounts. Okay. And so when I was reading on your website at Seed, you were saying how the problem in the field now with probiotic supplementation is that that term is is not being adhered to by a lot of probiotic supplement companies, in your in your opinion. Is that true? Yeah, well, it's typically, you know, this is one of the things that happens in when marketing or um, uh, as people say, say evangelism gets ahead of the science is the term starts to become commodified. Uh, or commoditized, and it becomes just another race to the bottom. Or and, and you see this everywhere. You see uh, yogurts, you see uh, fermented foods, you see snacks that have been either um, have you have used some microbe in the preparation process, or that even have uh, uh, spore-forming organisms added to them uh, before or after the fa- after production. You see the term become kind of a proxy for anything that has something to do with microbes or that may be good for the gut when in fact it's a very specific term uh, and the term actually necessitates that there be some defined property or some defined value uh, that that can be added to human health and this is really important because you can have a probiotic which um, increases your weekly number of bowel movements or that changes your stool consistency or that increases micronutrient production in the body you can have a number of different benefits that a microbe can have 
But as people need to become more educated because what well, not all of those benefits would be the same, right? So for, for somebody that's interested in um, optimizing, optimizing their digestion or, um, you know, most elite athletes report having GI disorders or issues, the probiotic for them may be very different than a probiotic for somebody that has um, a disorder or constant eruptions at the surface of the skin, for example, right? Or it might be different from uh, a probiotic for someone that's suffering from recurrent urinary tract infections. And so uh, that specificity, I think, is really important when uh, discussing the category as a whole. And, you know, we say like, like uh, calling, a probi- calling anything with bacteria a probiotic is like calling anything with words a book. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very nonspecific um, term where there's a, there's a whole lexicon that can be used to kind of make it make, give more clarity to the field, I think. Mm. And I th- uh, that's what, um, it, as a consumer, I've been confused at times. You walk into a health food store and you get such a range of probiotics and already you don't know, okay, so which strain, what, how many, should they be live, should they not be live? You know, should I get the ones out the fridge? Should I not get the ones out the fridge? Um, and that's what we're going to be talking a, bit, a little bit more about today because that's these are definitely the kind of questions I want to know and uh, hopefully listeners will want to know. But another aspect of this is what is the difference then between a probiotic, a prebiotic, and a symbiotic? So a prebiotic is a compound. Usually they're fiber, types of fibers which enrich for certain taxa or classes of bacteria in the, in the human gut. So um, these would be your short to medium chain oligosaccharides. Uh, fibers are just very long chain oligosaccharides oftentimes. Um, but what happens is that these compounds, and most of them are found in food actually, are preferentially utilized by bacteria in the gut and by specific bacteria that are known to be beneficial. So I'll give you an example. Uh, so some prebiotics are compounds from food that bacteria turn into these things called short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids are signaling molecules. They're a nutrition source for the human uh, colonic epithelial cells. Um, they affect your insulin sensitivity and glucose tolerance. They affect your um, uh, cardi- cardiovascular biomarkers. So there's these classes of compounds that are selectively produced when certain organisms have are come in contact with these types of fibers. And those are known... Um, as prebiotics. Now, there's a second type of prebiotic, and these are what you would often ki- call these uh, allergic-rich or these polyphenolic compounds that are found in food. And this is a little bit counterintuitive. So, what makes these prebiotics is actually different from what you would think normally in nutrition. And this is that they're they're so big that they're not absorbed by the body during digestion. And so, maybe three to five percent of these large poly- polyphenols are actually absorbed in the small intestines as a nutritive compound. The rest of them, because of their molecular size, they pass through to the gut where they're uh, prime time candidates for feasting by gut bacteria and they're, they're transformed into smaller, more bioactive metabolites. So all that basically means is if you think about Pac-Man a little bit, breaking down these larger uh, you know, balls into smaller and smaller, more digestible areas, a lot of these uh, are these transformed or these... Um, microbially metabolized compounds have unique bioactive properties that you can't necessarily find in the original food source itself. So that's kind of the uh, most emerging field of prebiotic science right now, which is how large molecules from diet uh, interact with gut bacteria to have um, systemic effects for the human body. So 
that's prebiotics. In, in, in some, think about them as non-bacterial components that are utilized by bacteria in some way that are beneficial to health. And similar to the probiotics group, a uh, working panel had just recently published a draft guidance on the, the definition of prebiotics as well. So in comparison, probiotics are a live organism. And so in this case, the requirement is that they are indeed uh, an organism or a bacteria, not a food compound, not a uh, fatty acid, not a vitamin, um, but actually a live organism um, that has its own properties for improving human health in any number of ways. And there are four or five different mechanisms by which bacteria can do this that we know of today. Um, but as long as it works through one of those pathways and it has a validated effect in humans, it would be considered probiotic. And then, because I was coming across the term symbiotic, which is then a blend of pre and uh, probiotics together. Um, yeah, so symbiotic is when you combine the properties of both together into one uh, application or into one formulation, or there's some um, dual, dual site of activity that, that's occurring of both prebiotic and probiotic activity. Okay, so when it comes to that already gets me the, um, thinking, do you have to have a symbiotic? So do you, when you look to buy a probiotic supplement, should you have a prebiotic already built in with a supplement itself in order to get the best benefit from it? Uh, well, it depends on what you're looking for. So if you have a weak, if you have a, a weak organism that's your probiotic that has a hard time uh, growing or surviving in you know various GI conditions, then I would say you should look for a symbiotic because it'll help optimize for that growth during transit. The flip side about symbiotics that haven't been that that have that type of bacterial growth or that that compatibility component is that. Uh, for some people that have GI sensitivities or that may have an improper small, small intestinal bowel, um, you know, microbial composition, you can actually cause fermentation to happen too far up and that can cause more discomfort or more bloating. And when you hear people say, well, this didn't really work for my system or uh, if, you, if you, you know, after a couple of weeks, you still have um, uh, discomfort, then it may be because these organisms are becoming active uh, uh, too high up in the GI system. So I, it's not necessary, uh, but for weak strains, I think it definitely helps. Um, and for not for for prebiotics that are not actually meant to just have some immediate fitness advantage to the bacteria that you're that you're ingesting, um, it's just an extra additional feature that makes the product better. So uh, you know we make a we make a we spent years developing this symbiotic formulation, um, but it doesn't work through that mechanism where our bacteria need the prebiotic compound just to stay alive the bacteria would be sufficient on their on their own but rather it's the combination of prebiotic compounds which can work on different taxa or different class of bacteria to have a larger chance of having a, uh, a more um, detectable uh, microbial shift okay and what you were talking about there is a good point that if someone takes it and they get that like bloating effect is that something related to SIBO, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, that condition? You know, it's hard, to, it's hard to say because there's so much interpersonal variation and, and biology does differ between people in some ways. Um, you, you can expect for the first four, up to four weeks to have some mild discomfort, which is just called acclimation. It's just the body recognizing um, new organisms that are, that are present. And think about it from an evolutionary context, right? So if a bolus of bacteria were uh, to spontaneously emerge into the GI system, the body should have some more means of sensing that to alert the host, right? Well, maybe this food, you know, 
as it gets more information, you, it can make decisions as to whether the intestinal system would be tolerant or resistant to it. But in the early stages, you oftentimes do report, and, and I think these are reported frequently, um, some sort of uh, detection on a, on a dietary shift, that, particularly if it contains microbes. Okay, good. And so again, that's a good tip for listeners who may have never taken a probiotic supplement. If you do get a bit of bloated feeling or gassing feeling, it may be a natural occurrence as your body adapts for the first few weeks of taking that particular strain or supplement. Particularly a high dose probiotic, yes. Okay, good. Um, and then I want to ask too, uh, what is the difference then, because we're talking a lot about supplementation here, but you get uh, fermented foods, which are seen as a natural probiotic. Are they? So what's the difference between, say, a f getting your probiotics from a fermented food versus a supplement? So, so most scientists that work in kind of the defining of probiotics actually don't consider fermented foods to be probiotic. Uh, they, they actually have their own class, which is just fermented foods as a class of, uh, of uh, microbial or microbially related uh, uh, products or foods in and of itself. So um, not all probiotics are, have to be fermented foods and most fermented foods are not probiotic unless you can validate that there's this type of effect. Uh, and so I really want to be careful about that distinction because a lot of people use the term probiotic to think that anything that's fermented is intercha interchangeable. For example, that you know having a fermented tea um, would be the same as having a defined cocktail of bacteria that you could ingest. And I think that they're very different. And the most obvious and evident reason for that is because a lot of the what, what we're allowed or capable of doing with these new techniques of delivering bacteria either in capsule form or in some sort of inert state, right? So it's called lyophilized, but all that means is the organisms are not actually active at the time until they come back in contact with water. But what that means is that you can combine organisms that in a in a culture media, uh, probably would become very, very few of them would take over and become dominant over a certain uh, series or period of uh, metabolic or fermentative cycles. So you can have 5, 10, 15, 20 different strains, um, whereas in a kombucha culture, for example, you might just only have the strains that are useful as surviving within that SCOBY. Uh, but if you add anything else, it would have a hard time because microbes have various techniques to outcompete each other. So um, I, I think that there's... They're, they're very different. I, I eat, personally, I eat fermented foods um, and drink fermented beverages from time to time, provided they're low in sugar, uh, but not under the pretense that I'm getting some probiotic benefit, but just because I find um, that I like the fizziness or I like the texture or I like the taste. Um, and, and to be determined, you know, I, I, I hope more studies are done that really show what fermentation techniques, what methods, should it be, uh, what what uh, pasteurization or um, preservative uh, techniques are used for the product to bring it to shelf? I think that all these things can have such profound variability on a food product between a, between different products. But I think that the field as a whole just needs to study it a little bit better. Because mm, I know what's going to happen is I'm going to get the question: Should you take a supplement at all um, versus just <clears throat> try consume more fermented foods? Because then you're doing the more natural way of taking you know using food versus taking a supplement. So in this case here, would you say that it sounds to me that people taking fermented foods are on the right track, but they could be missing certain strains, which you can't get in the supplementation, um, unless you, I guess, maybe take a massive variation of fermented foods, um, or you hope that you get the right strain from the right type of fermented food that you're taking? 
Yeah. Well, I just want to clarify, you know, in general, I think supplementation is, um, is very unnecessary, uh, barring a couple of examples. So if you're low in iron or low in vitamin D3 or, um, I think N3 fatty acids, if you don't eat a lot of fatty fish on a day-to-day -day basis are, um, you know, pretty important. And so, but, but most of all, those would probably be the only, only, uh, products or supplements that as a whole, I would say people should supplement with. And maybe if you just want to be extra sure, um, a multivitamin product every couple of days, uh, just to cover your bases may, may be fine. I think bacteria is very different. I don't consider bacteria and bacterial products to traditionally be supplements because they have very interesting uh, properties and behaviors that you don't find in micronutrients. And so, um, for example, uh, bacteria, or at least the bacteria that we study, have this effect on intestinal cells where they stitch up in, uh, epithelial tight junctions. And so a number of different uh, processes or uh, activities of, of just daily behavior can cause this phenomenon of um, tight junction um, or intestinal permeability or uh, you know what people call uh, leaky gut. I, I don't like the term, but I would say barrier disintegrity would probably be another way that I would that, that I would say it. And we know that everything from like uh, Tylenol to alcohol to poor sleep to um, anti-inflammatory compounds to what to to a, a high saturated fat diet can all have this type of temporary effect. And so, is it something that's going to kill you? Or I mean, I mean, we know that when this happens, the immune system goes haywire because it's actually the compound from bacteria that enters into your circulation is used in the lab as a model to induce inflammation. So we know that these properties exist, um, but the question is really, I mean, I think that's a decision that's up to the listener on whether they find that to be something which is a com compelling enough reason um, to, to take supplementation, right? Because it's not going to cause acute toxicity or um, acute cell death, uh, but you're certainly less optimized uh, when you have those consistent periods of uh, barrier disintegrity. And so... Um, again, the field as a whole hasn't directly linked that type of phenomenon to saying, well, uh, I don't know, people like these simple stories, like you'll live 10 years less or you'll uh, put on more weight. Um, but we do know that it does have a close interaction with the immune system. Um, and there, there's theories that are built on the cascade that that can have downstream uh, that, that are just all starting to come together. So that's one example where I would say... Uh, I, I think it does make a lot of sense, and and that's the, one of the primary reasons why why I'm motivated to eat bacteria. Um, you know, for for other other people, it may be different. You may have uh, elevated cholesterol, but you don't want to take statins. And we now know bacteria can trap cholesterol after a meal and prevent its reabsorption in, in that kind of cholesterol reuptake reuptake cycle. Um, we know that bacteria uh, produce B vitamins. So one could argue what what would be more natural taking uh, a, a bacteria which is naturally found in the human body that produces B vitamins that then enter into systemic circulation or taking a, uh, you know, a B vitamin complex. A, a lot of these lines get, get really blurred. And um, I, I, could, I would ultimately leave that up. Look, humans survived for the most part for very well prior to modern civilization without any of these modern tools. I would argue their microbiome was probably a lot different then. Um, but I, I, I think that the, the jury is still out on whether, um, I don't think anybody can say, well, uh, you need to do this or, or this will happen. I mean, I don't really believe in those types of fear tactics. So I don't think anyone's at, um, at, at risk of any, 
predisposed for any risk of disease or illness. But I do think that there's a role that bacteria can play in optimizing health. Mm -hmm. And to me, it sounds like, and that's exactly what a lot of people listening to the show would have, is that they may have a condition and they typically use to dietary interventions to solve that, like an autoimmune condition, an inflammatory condition or some sort. And, you know, time and time again, the thing I always hear from most people is that it's, you know, a gut barrier integrity issue, exactly what you're talking about. And so changing what you eat stops you from aggravating it through the different types of foods that you eat. But in this case here, what I'm also hearing from your side is that potentially that if you have the right bacteria, the bacteria themselves can assist in making sure those tight junctions, the, the, your intestine is, is a better barrier so that you're able to um, reduce those inflammatory events. So in this case, I'm looking to stack it together where you could take a probiotic and try change your diet to get the quickest reduction in inflammation in your body if it's coming yeah. through your gut. And, and it's an important point because that type of effect doesn't happen if you just have a good microbiome because you actually have to ingest bacteria to move in transit through your GI system to have that signaling effect. So that's actually a, an effect that's unique to the oral ingestion of bacteria uh, versus just having a healthy microbiome. So I just wanted to make that distinction in case it was um, uh, unclear. Okay, good. Um, and so just looking at that there, you brought up the, t uh, the topic of risk. Is, are there any risks in taking probiotics themselves? Um, anything associated that people need to be aware of? Yeah, so the only studies that, that implicate probiotics with any type of uh, risk factors in patients that are immunocompromised, and even in immunocompromised patients, you find that the data is a little conflicting. So I, I certainly would say if you have a, an underlying condition like, um, like an HIV infection or um, uh, a, a rejection or an inability to produce certain antibodies, then um, you, you might be hesitant or careful, uh, or, or I would say exercise extra caution or work very closely with your physician. Um, but for the most part, you know, probiotics, particularly bacteria within the lactobacillus and bifidobacterium genera, and I would call those, let's say, first-generation probiotics. And I think in the future, there will be a lot more uh, unique and novel organisms that claim to have some benefit that I would say maybe take a little bit more uh, comfort you know, maybe maybe take a little bit more time to let the safety data roll up for continuous consumption of these um, novel organisms that don't have a long and safe history of use. But at this point, you know, these four organisms are found or are picked up by the infant during vaginal passage during birth. Uh, Bifidobacterium are some of the uh, g the genera of bacteria that are enriched the most from the uh, prebiotics that are found in breast milk. And so humans have a very close and intimate relationship, particularly with these types of bacteria that are often used um, as probiotic organisms or that are, that are found in uh, commercially available probiotic products. So um, I think that the safety record at this point for healthy, otherwise healthy individuals is really, uh, is really um, evident. Mm. And so it sounds like potentially, yeah, if you've got a lowered immune system, uh, I can also think of another common sector of patients, which might be uh, chemo treatment patients who are getting their immune system lowered by the drugs themselves that in uh, consultation with their doctors is even more important at that stage just to make sure they, there's no negativity from taking a supplement in this case, a probiotic. I, I would be very careful, particularly under, uh, under chemotherapy or immunotherapy, for example, as well, for, for anything. Um, I would eliminate everything at that point and uh, let, let the host recover. And, you know, you bring up a really interesting point. So 
I think now it's, it's well validated that the microbiome plays a role in helping people respond or not respond to these cancer therapies like, uh, like uh, checkpoint inhibitors or immunotherapy. So I think in the future, to me, it's wildly exciting to think of uh, a future where you could have a rationally defined cocktail of bacteria that can make you respond more effectively to these types of other traditional uh, treatments for serious diseases. So um, we're just not there. I mean, the field isn't there yet as a whole, but we're starting to get the first glance behind the curtain and it's uh, it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had a other couple of uh, microbiome scientists on the show and they get so excited because they're finding the, how the microbiome and the virome is all it involved in so many conditions you know, uh, you know from inside your hip joint to in your brain to it's not just a gut thing it's we are an entire organism through everything and just that how that imbalance then it can contribute to conditions so actually you when we were off air you brought up a really interesting point about how you're involved with an organization or an advocacy group that's looking to um help pioneer the field of when you could take different cocktails of probiotics or micro biomes versus medications yeah so it's a it's an organization group called mtig and um i recently joined as a board member and uh there's four companies to date but it's growing that are participating um and it's growing uh seemingly every quarter but it's it's a radical concept you know but in this organization there's people that are working on all these areas that we for the most part i've talked about so um, things like a Clostridium difficile infection, which is a nasty infection that becomes resistant to antibiotics or can actually be caused from taking antibiotics when, there's, when it's latent uh, or if it's existing in your gut already can then grow out of uh, control when you get rid of your other residents of your microbiome. Um, there's people working on how bacteria can prevent and treat food allergies. Uh, there's people working on cancer therapy. Um, there's people working on allergies and atopic disorders and eczema and psoriasis. Uh, and then of course, you know, we have a, a number of, a number of tracks in our company that we're looking at from, um, everything from IBD to, uh, food allergies to, um, oral disease. So there's, the, I, I think that the, every, everywhere there's an external surface in your body and we're even finding within some tumors and organ sites, there are microbes. And so we're just starting to untangle exactly what role it plays. You know, I saw some fascinating data at a conference two weeks ago where, um, you know, colon cancer is one of the top three biggest causes of cancer in the world, and we don't really know why. Uh, and we don't really have any easy way of detection or predicting when, whether someone's at more, more risk. But what, the, what this study found was a particular bacteria, which is found in the mouth, is one of the main drivers of going from early stage colon cancer into it metastasizing to other sites in the body. And then even in tumors that are, have metastasized and are now in, uh, in, in sites all over the body, you find the same organism, this fusobacterium lodged within the tumor. So it's, 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 in, it's really crazy to think about. Sometimes bacteria can be incredibly protective, but other times under the wrong conditions or suboptimal conditions, uh, they can actually explain some of these uh, medical mysteries or these unknowns um, when you know, our drugs kind of work, but they don't work for everybody and we don't really know why. And, and, you find that most often in these big diseases like uh, neurodegenerative disease or uh, cancer. And uh, I think that our therapies are going to get a lot more effective when we start considering the microbial side of things. Mm. And another one that comes to my mind is um, I had a dentist on the show talking about the oral microbiome and how there also, if you've got chronic infections and bacteria in your, in the gums of your, in, in the, in your mouth, how that contributes to 
you know, heart attacks and a whole bunch of other conditions too, potentially. It's really interesting. You know, there's a group that's um, uh, diabetes, heart disease. Um, when ingested, we now know that it can be a driver for uh, colon cancer, but probably of the relationship between the oral microbiome and disease, the one that's most interesting to me is uh, a theory that's, that has been proposed about 10 years ago uh, that says that oral bacteria or bacteria in particular, when the blood brain barrier starts to lose its integrity, bacteria or their metabolites can then begin the cascade resulting in these uh, amyloid plaques or these um, neurodegenerative, the, the base state or the beginning of the progression for neurodegenerative disease, particularly Alzheimer's and dementia. And uh, there's a company right now that's um, uh, emerged out of a research lab. And what they did was they actually gave a small molecule that blocked uh, the ability of these bacteria, these oral bacteria cell membranes to cross the blood brain barrier. And they found that it dramatically reduced the emergence of Alzheimer's disease. And so that's pretty compelling evidence that there's something going on when that bacteria enters in either accelerating or in causing the initial uh, a cascade. There's definitely a connection. Um, I, I don't know why. I think this is just, this, it's, so, it's, so, it's so fascinating to me um, how a bacteria in your mouth can cause you to lose your mind uh, later in life. It's, it, 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 it's absurd. Mm. Um, and I'd like to then also just ask what something I brought up right in the beginning here is the person walking to the health food shop and, you know, they're inundated with all these different products then. So do you have to get the probiotic that's in the fridge? Uh, so refrigeration is a very uh, big myth. Whether a probiotic is refrigerated or whether it's not, that, that microbe has undergone the exact same development process. Um, it, namely, it's been cultured, it's been thawed, it's been fermented in, in these big chambers. Uh, at that point, it comes out and it gets lyophilized, which means that the water is sublimated out of it. So now that organism is in a completely inert state, whether it's on your shelf or whether it's in a refrigerator. No difference in the bacteria, no difference in its viability, uh, unless the company, of course, is, hasn't tested for it, um, and no difference in the production process. So if anything, companies that have refrigerated products uh, that, that conflate it to be a form of freshness, you have to ask them a lot of questions, right? Because uh, may, at best, they just want to extend, use less overages in their product to extend their own shelf life. So they're just passing the burden of preservation onto the consumer and the supply chain instead of onto the company. And at worst, you know, um, you're, you, you may be exposing the product to higher water activity because uh, there's more condensation in refrigerated sections than in cool, dry, uh, dark uh, storage conditions. So... Um, I think that the optimal storage conditions for probiotics are cool, exceedingly dry and dark environments like what you might find in your pantry, for example. Um, it, it, as a cautionary tale, I would say if people do want to keep their products in the refrigerator or freezer, um, make sure that the packaging is really secure. Put it in a uh, moisture resistant kind of air, airtight uh, package and then then keep it, keep it stored in there. But um, I, I want to give give listeners comfort that um, refrigerated doesn't mean that there's some something about the product that makes it more fresh. If anything, it's uh, maybe exposing it to higher higher, higher uh, relative humidity or, or moisture activity. Yeah, because actually that's another good point I just thought of there. So even if someone who's gone and bought um, 
you know, a bottle of probiotics, you don't need to store them in the fridge to keep them longer in that case. As long as it's in a cool, dry place, that's even better. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because, you know, sometimes you would go into a health food shop and then your presumption is, oh, the ones in the fridge must be more powerful. They're going to be better than the ones that aren't in the fridge. Um, but as you said, that that's not the case. Yeah, that's called marketing, uh, which yeah. which it sounds like we were talking about with that definition earlier. So that's a good point there. And then also, um, I'd like to just understand a little bit more about seed then and the kind of strains that you chose and at the dosages that you chose versus maybe what, when someone's shopping and reading the label on other products. Like how, how can we educate a listener here to go, okay, yeah, you know, look for this on the label versus what, you know, you guys might be displaying. Yeah. So the very first thing to know is when you see a probiotic and it just says the genus and the species. Um, I know that taxonomy and uh, Latin names are foreign to most people after 10th grade biology, but um, that is a very generic uh, way of classifying an organism. So I'll give you an example. If you go and look in the back and it says lactobacillus acidophilus, for example, and maybe you can list that amongst 5, 10, or a number of different genus and species. Lactobacillus is the genus, uh, acidophilus is the species. Within Lactobacillus acidophilus, there are hundreds of different strains uh, and strain designations that have very different properties, right? So um, species level designation is not sufficient uh, to make a health claim. And I know that there's some um, regulatory bodies that actually do allow health claims to be made at the species level. So I know in Australia, if you just use a bifidobacterium longum, the TGA will allow you to make a lot of different health claims just based off the fact that a different bifidobacterium longum has shown that it has some effect in a, in a health study before. And uh, I, I think that's going to change. I think that as you know, regulatory agencies and, and consumers become more educated, they're going to ask for that level of, of evidence and that burden of evidence on what exactly is happening and what's your rationale for the company to include a specific strain. So Always look for that next bit where you'd say then lactobacillus acidophilus LA02, for example, right? Which is uh, can then get matched back up to having some rationale for why that strain would be beneficial or why there'd be, you'd expect to have a health benefit from that strain. So that's the first is always look for strain level designation. The second is to make sure that the dosages of the strains are, in, are, are the quantity that was studied to have a therapeutic effect. So another thing that companies can do is have a big blend where one organism may make up 90% of the cell count in that product, but they have small trace quantities of other strains to diversify the label and to give the product the appearance of having more robust or diverse strain, uh, strain basis. So um, always look for at least two, three, four, five different breakouts of different potencies and different enumeration um, per strain or per different strain blends because that's some evidence of some sort of um, inclusion or rationale. Most people cut corners because it's cheaper. To, most companies cut corners there because it's cheaper to do so. And the third and the final area is to actually figure out, well, what do you think that this could actually do, right? So uh, is there evidence for having a benefit in digestion? If so, what parts of digestion? Is it in, could it could it benefit an otherwise healthy person, or is it only for people that have something like pouchitis, in which case it may be very limited effect in a, in a generally healthy person? Uh, do you, does it have other benefits? Does it affect different organ systems? Um, are the are the research is the research published? Uh, these are all the questions that you want to look for in a product, and that's kind of the box. That those are the boxes, and that was the rationale that our chief scientists and I 
uh, and our R&D team went before we even developed the product, um, looking for this rationale, looking for what would an otherwise healthy individual um, benefit the most from the oral consumption of bacteria? It's a very simple question, but you'd be surprised at how um, few companies actually ask it. Yeah. So, I mean, those are some fantastic points already that I think you've helped to empower listeners because that's what I try to do is to educate someone so they can make up their own mind about what they want to do. So I think being able to read a label is so important. And the BF, is it BC, BFU, I think it is, or BCU or number that comes on that? How important is that? So it's not, more doesn't always mean better as long as the, the dosage that's being used is the dosage that was used in the study or in the trial. So it's CFU, which is a reference right. to colony forming units. Um, but even, I, I don't know how technically you want to go on this, but even that's a suboptimal marker of measuring the biological activity of an organism because you can have a lot of strains that have activity, but they're not colony formers. So what we use is a, a method called flow cytometry. It uses lasers to tag cell walls that distinguish between live and dead organisms. And um, the marker that you would look for there is AFU, which is not colony forming units like CFU, but active fluorescent units. And these are the units that were active to, de to demonstrate that the cells were alive. So I know it's confusing. Every, um, Agency, every government, every company does these things a little bit differently because there are poor methods and poor methods of standardization today. Um, but, you know, I think that we're st the, the, the general public and bodies and um, uh, institutions are starting to converge. And so we're going to start to see a lot more uh, draft guidance on what you should be using to standardize and quantify organisms in the future. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen AFU on a bottle before. Um, it's always been CFU. And exactly that point, you think maybe that someone advising you in the health food store would say, oh, no, this has got a lot of this one, which is exactly what you need. But you said it's not the amount, it's the amount that was studied to cause the benefit. Yeah, exactly. I've seen trials where um, a billion has a benefit in a trial, but five billion doesn't. And we don't know why. So it's not always the case that, uh, that more is better. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, so um, you also mentioned something, which is always a common question, actually, and I forgot to ask that was, um, after antibiotics, should you always take a probiotic? Yeah, so this is a, this is a really, this is going to open up a whole, <laughs> a, a whole discussion here. Um, until recently, the recommendation had always been yes, which is that my, you know, your microbiome is dramatically affected and vulnerable after a broad spectrum antibiotic. Probiotics uh, in general, or and, and again, it depends on which probiotic you're using, what strain, all the stuff we've already talked about today, um, can both have a protective effect during those periods of vulnerability, but also start to build these compounds that are used by other resident members of the uh, gut microbiome to rebound quicker. That's been the traditional wisdom. Recently, there's been five trials on this that have had completely conflicting evidence. So one of them says that you want to wait five days before you start taking probiotics um, if you want like 80% of the organisms to rebound, but then another trial couldn't replicate the results. Another trial says that antibiotics right after probi or probiotics right after antibiotics uh, dramatically um, uh lowers your risk of getting an infection and the microbiome recovers at the exact same speed and rate. Um, and then the other trials that just actually, it's funny you bring it up that have come out just in the past week, say 
it depends on what your starting microbiome is. For some people would dramatically benefit from taking probiotics. Other people might not see any benefit at all because they have a resilient microbiome that would recover regardless of whether they took a probiotic or not. And so unfortunately, there's not really any clear um, definitive guidance. I think my answer to this question is a little bit different than looking at the genetic composition of the microbiome. It's looking at the functional role that probiotics play. And for me, in those periods of windows of, of vulnerability, I think that it's uh, extra important to supplement with beneficial bacteria that have functional properties that are protective to the host. Okay. Yeah. And also what I'm just thinking here then is that, so it sounds like the research out there may be in the gray zone. It's not black and white with that question right now. But what I'm also hearing is that there is no significant risk to taking it. All that could happen is that you could get no effect or you could get an effect is what I'm hearing. Is that a good summary? Exactly. Even the studies that say that um, you might get no effect or your microbiome might recover better if you wait five days. If you go out to the microbiome recovery in both groups, two months, three months, four months later, the microbiome, the, it looks exactly the same. So long term, there's no risk. The microbiome will rebound and recover. Um, the confusion right now is really on whether which probiotics, whether to, whether to wait five days or not to take it. Um, if it's worth the money for some people because it might not have an effect at all. Uh, those are the types of questions I think most people have right now. Mm. And, you know, there's always, again, this is consumer choice. It's people who may be concerned because they've had to take pro uh, an antibiotic for a period of time. If they really are that concerned, it sounds like it's okay. Go, just go get a good pro probiotic of anything. It could give you benefit, but, you know, just it gives you that peace of mind, if, if anything, too. Worst case after four or five months, your microbiome will look exactly the same as the person that um, didn't take the probiotic. So these these are highly resilient ecosystems. Um, but if you have if you're at risk of antibiotic associated diarrhea or GI complications or have a history of a of a gut infection, um, I would say that you'd probably get a lot more benefit from taking it. But again, if you can afford it and if you can take it, I think the risks are minimal, but the functional benefits could be, uh, could be, could be pretty strong. Okay. And this is going to get me a little bit into some other common questions people may not sometimes get to ask someone like you who lives in this world is how often do you need to take it and what kind of dosage? So does a 20-year-old need to take the same dosage as someone who's in their 80s? Does a male need to take the same amount as a female? These kind of nuances. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a funny question where, you know, you oftentimes see children's products having lower dosages than adults' products. But by the age of two and a half or so, um, the microbiome is stable and resembles the microbiome in terms of its composition uh, and dynamics and load, like the number of bacteria and the quantity of a full of a full blown adult. So I don't really know what this, why the science, if there is any science to support why at various stages of life, the dosage should vary. I think that I, I find it very uh, unscientific when you see children's just being like a small, a littler version of the adult product. I don't, I don't know what if the science necessarily supports that, but but you see it everywhere. Um, there are studies, there are some studies that are designed with different uh, dosages for different populations, but I think that those were just testing it. I don't think it was based off of. Um, some, some microbiological quality of the organisms where an elderly person would need more or a, a child would need less. Uh, certainly, there's going to be no difference in the ability to, toler to tolerate it. The only difference I would say in terms of dosages or, or who I would recommend deviating from the clinically studied or the validated dosage 
would be patients that have a history of immunocompromisation because maybe you don't want to expose the immune system. Their high quantity or high dosage really does matter. Um, but in terms of safety-wise, uh, you see dosages as small as 200 million and you see dosages as high as uh, 3.6 trillion, uh, which is about 10% of the whole microbiome, which is, a, is, is pretty excessive to me, but uh, you, you do see that as well. Um, and it clusters very weakly with what the efficacious dose was in a clinical trial. So I think, again, the answer is the dose is the dose that was validated and the dose that was studied. Um, and I don't think that there, you, we can make, um, we have enough information to make differences based off of stage of life or um, sex or pre-existing conditions or, uh, you know, racial group. I think that all of those uh, stratifications are um, for the gut microbiome, at least today, I don't think that they, they hold up in water. Okay. And then the dosage side of things. So if I only take a probiotic for two or three days, do I get null benefit versus I actually needed to load my system for at least three weeks before my, my actual microbiome takes some sort of change or gets some so sort of benefit? Very, yeah, there's very, I, I forgot that question. Thank you for reminding me. Um, there are very few studies that show that oral consumption of probiotics in, an, in a mature microbiome stick around long term. So that's called colonization. So most gut, most resident gut microbiomes have a feature where they don't allow new organisms to colonize. So really the therapeutic benefit to, for probiotics uh, today is based on continuous consumption. Uh, and so again, you may get short-term benefits from taking it short-term, um, but the prevailing recommendation is if you want to see the results continue that were studied in trials, uh, for the most part, it would be based on continuous consumption. Now, that doesn't mean if you miss a day here or there that you have to start over, you have to freak out. Um, but for the, for the most part, there's between a four and eight week washout period of uh, probiotic consumption, which means if you stop, maybe those organisms only persist in the gut for a couple of weeks afterwards before they, uh, any protection that you're being afforded from their presence would be washed out. Okay, so you so say if, you, if you're getting some sort of benefit, yeah, taking it continuously, 365 days a year is a, is a good thing. And particularly for, if you remember that distinction we made earlier for things like um, barrier integrity, you know, that's based off of transient passage of the organisms moving through your GI tract. So as often as you, um, I mean, in that case, even an argument could be made for multiple times per day if you want optimal protection. But really the more exposure that you have, uh, if that's the feature that, you, that you're interested in, uh, I think the better. And timing-wise is, so we we, uh, we touched on it a little bit, like where you said, oh, if someone's worried about their cholesterol, then, you know, take a, you know, potentially a certain bacteria could help. Or Because um, sometimes this is the kind of level that I, I know people ask when they get a bottle, it's like, okay, should I take it in the morning? Should I take it before a meal, after a meal, with a meal? Or uh, like you said, maybe you load it a couple of times in a day for different situations. So I want to apply it because now, I'm running in events. My gut's not going to be happy. I take it during the running, you know, the marathon or something. So uh, three use cases there that I'll answer just really quickly. Uh, optimal conditions are on an empty stomach, um, at least 30 minutes prior to the consumption of a meal because that has the most resistance, because organisms are not only uh, vulnerable to stomach acid, but also to digestive enzymes, to bile acids, uh, you know, the process of digestion is also very hostile to bacteria. Uh, and so I would avoid 
cohabiting the organisms with the digestive process um, in, as a base case, just as a general rule of thumb. If you would be interested in cholesterol-lowering properties, I would recommend taking it after a meal because the strains, specific strains that would be looking at cholesterol applications or a reduction in cholesterol or an increase in cholesterol uptake, um, those would be those would have already been tested to be pretty resistant to digestive function, and that's when cholesterol is released into the system as a product. These these bile acids, primary and secondary bile acids and salts, are released when a meal is consumed that has some fat in it. So after uh, or sh very shortly after a meal of that type for cholesterol lowering quantities would seem to be most optimal. And um, for basic use cases where you think you're, you know, engaging in some activity that could have um, compromising effects on your barrier, for example, uh, the recommendation would not, I, I don't think it would be during necessarily, but probably before and after. Um, so you can have some initial protective effect and then you can have some repair function afterwards. Okay. That's, yeah, again, useful tips of when to apply this stuff. I'll give you, I'll, I'll kind of uh, tease a little bit. We're doing a study right now where we're looking at how, um, Specifically, the bacteria that we have in our product affects the gut lining before and after consumption of ethanol or alcohol. So uh, we had a, obviously a hypothesis, um, but I can't with data answer the question yet today. But I think in the next three to six months, I, I, I will be able to. So um, ethanol, similarly, like uh, I don't know, you know, most people do drink alcohol from time to time. Um, and we know that has an effect on the gut barrier. To date, there is no draft guidance on how bacteria can be used to attenuate that risk, and so uh, it's a, it's an area of research that we're uh, that we're currently exploring. Okay, yeah, we're just a few months out from the New Year's celebrations, so just in time for those the, those drink that <laughs> drinking time is when we'll get the data, will it? <laughs> yeah, I don't think the data will be back by then, but uh, we'll, we'll try our best. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great, um, and. Uh, I know we've touched on a little bit with uh, seed, but could you just uh, maybe then say um, the the types of strains that you and uh, that you chose for seed is that then just for general maintenance, or would you say even seed could be used for people who might not be at optimal health? They're not immunocompromised, but they could still then benefit from this, or do they need to look for more specific strains? Um, so. The simple answer is for people that are uh, in not in any disease condition or state, um, but that would be interested in any of the features we discussed above, like um, increased protection of tight junction epithelial cells or uh, increase in micronutrient synthesis or uh, improvements in digestion, whether it's number of weekly bowel movements, stool consistency, stool hydration, ease of expulsion, um, dermatological benefits. We have some strains that signal to the immune system to attenuate uh, inflammation at the side of the skin. Um, those are kind of the core and cardiovascular benefits as well. Those are the functions that we looked for and screened for and co-developed in some, in, in many of these instances, um, when designing our cocktail or our, our combination or our strain, strain bank, as you would say, I never say that someone that has a disease or a condition should, t should take a product or that it'll have any benefit for it, because I think that that should be, that should be in close concert with someone in their physician. Um, we are doing a trial with Harvard on patients that have IBS. So as soon as that, and, and we're filing uh, the appropriate regulatory documents with the FDA to do that type of trial. So when that trial is over, I may be able to answer the question more definitively with data. Uh, but to date, I would, um, uh, I would probably just say um, the, the, the first group of people. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. And again, just to, to 
from what I'm hearing, then the differentiating oh, my, my English my differentiation factor with seed then versus others is that the the strains that are in your product are the ones that follow the definition that they're alive and that they have been confirmed through science to have human benefit at that dosage. Yeah. Well, there's no product that has this type, this robust, and this this many strains um, with with such a robust evidence base. So. Um, you know, we, we, we even added to it further. So uh, one thing that's really proprietary for us is we developed an asset, a, a test with the Department of Genetics at Harvard, where we're looking actually at um, cellular detox pathways and the ability to induce cellular detoxification in response to stress. So it's a really novel assay that's looking at this. It's, it's technical, but the NRF2 transcription factor. Um, and we screen strains from even, even after what we talked about, all these areas, we further validated and screened strains through this diagnostic tool to optimize for strains um, that have this type of effect on human cells. So this is increasing cellular detoxification, this is producing short-chain fatty acids, and this is, in combination, increasing these tight junction proteins, so that barrier integrity effect. And uh, to my knowledge, I don't know any other company that's done that level of work on, uh, on their strain bank. Okay. And then also something else I've come across with other supplement companies is third-party lab testing. Because, you know, the people, pay, uh, consumers don't know, basically, I hope what's labeled is actually in the bottle. And do you have the same thing in the probiotic industry that's, you may have a label saying X something or X, as you, as I, I think you kind of answered where you said before that you could have uh, companies that have a large amount of one particular strain, but little trace amounts of another strain, but they still just label it on there. But in your case, when you label it on seed, if you say there's X amount of this strain, there is X amount of that strain at minimum in that bottle. Yeah. So the, the, in probiotics, it's more challenging because when you mix your strains all together, it's easy to, to find the total number of live organisms, but it's very hard to pick out which ones of them are representing what percentage. And so you have to use very sophisticated tools that are still kind of uh, emerging that are not really well validated for teasing out at the species and strain level what percentage makes up what uh, composition of the load. So unfortunately, there is good third-party testing for enumeration, for pesticides, for purity, uh, for contamination, but there are not very well validated assays for... Um, it's it's a... It's a a crime that a lot of companies are able to get away with right now because there aren't good methods for picking out that level of detail and differentiation uh, at the strain-specific level. So um, there are a couple that are emerging, but the problem is that they're so cost-prohibitive that a third-party lab would never be able to do it on another company. So you have to design a primer uh, that uses looks at specific fragments of DNA, and the cost of designing one of those primers could be $20,000 just for one strain. So no third-party lab is going to go and invest voluntarily on designing these primers for a random product off the shelf. And so unfortunately today, a lot of this effort is based off of um, uh, trust in the scientific credibility of the company, uh, asking the company to at least provide details. And if they then don't provide those details of what quantities of strains they have in the product at the strain-specific level, um, maybe you should be a little uh, uncertain or a little... Um, uh, skeptical of the product okay and then with seed yourself um your product is shipped internationally throughout the world uh, from what i saw on a monthly basis as of, as of four months ago yes fantastic and um if 
there's questions that I haven't asked that a consumer would want to ask more. Do you have a customer support team or someone who's on hand to be able to answer these questions? Absolutely, we have a we have a we have a customer support team and we have a scientific care team uh, that includes uh, master students and uh, medical doctors. Uh, you know, we take we take science and science education very seriously. So, uh, if anybody has questions and uh, reaches out or emails our customer support team. Uh, we're pretty good about getting all the information to people back in a very short period of time. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, because um, yeah, as you said, you know, there's there's probably more questions. I'm glad to know there's the backup support with, uh, with, with what Seed provides. Roger, um, we're on our time now. I think I've grilled you pretty hard on probiotics, and we had a great conversation on it. I mean, I've learned a ton myself, and I just want to say thank you so much for the clear and concise way that you've. Um, shared the details on what, what's happening in the probiotic world. And I'm excited to see what happens with Seed into the future. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure and I look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, and actually, sorry, one thing I forgot to ask was if anyone wants to get in contact uh, with Seed or follow you or follow Seed with the science in that, are there any um, particular links you, you'd like to share for listeners? Yeah, so we, we post great content on our uh, social channels. If you just go to the handle at Seed uh, on Instagram, you'll, you'll learn a ton. Um, I would say that's the best place to start. Okay, perfect. Now I'll link to that in the show notes. Again, Roger, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Bye.